everybody, and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast, volume 5, issue 204. You can play along with Cane and Rinse and our fifth volume. Uh, the next five games include Phoenix Wright, Ace Attorney. After that, Sunset Overdrive. Then we'll be covering the Street Fighter Zero or Street Fighter Alpha series. Then we return to Hyrule for The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, or Triforce of the Gods, if you're Japanese. Uh, and after that, it's the original Deus Ex. As always, and I know you don't always listen to this because I say the same thing every time, but do head to canorince.com where there are, uh, there's more stuff, not just the podcast, but also articles, features, reviews, our friendly and intelligent forum. Uh, you can also find links to our Facebook page and our YouTube channel, uh, which is getting more subscribers every day. Thank you for that. Keep them coming. Uh, we do now have a Patreon, uh, which is kind of like a virtual donation box. Uh, is, that's the way we're operating it, um, in that there's no hidden content, there's no paywalls, there's no goals or tiers or anything like that. It's simply that if you feel that the 50-plus uh, podcasts a year that we do, 100-plus hours, are worth uh our time and effort are worth uh, any any money in return you can you can now do that you can now send some our way uh at patreon.com slash cana uh and we'll be incredibly grateful uh if you do prefer to get something physical in return for your money we do also have a shop where you can buy t-shirts and bags quality merchandise uh, via Spreadshirt, um, and each purchase nets us a couple of pounds or a few dollars dollars depending on what you spend that's at uh, shop.spreadshirt.co.uk slash cane and rinse we also have another podcast which is uh, still growing in popularity but still some way behind this main show so do listen to sound of play you can subscribe and review and rate that as well as this on iTunes and Stitcher Radio and tune in and probably some other places as well. Um, and just generally via via the uh, the RSS feed. Thanks for your attention. Now, joining me, Leon Cox, in this issue, we are down to three. We have Darren Gargett. Hey. We have Ryan Heyman. Excuse me, princess. <laughs> Thanks a million. Um <laughs> What, who we don't have, uh, we were originally going to be a five on this. Um, I arranged it with, with there to be a five, assuming that maybe one might drop out given the legendary uh, difficulty of this game. Sean O'Brien dropped out uh, a little while ago. Uh, he couldn't get anywhere in the game to speak of. And we had a very late dropout from Joshua Garrity. He, uh, he failed to complete The Great Palace in time to complete the game, in time to be on the podcast. Um, I actually said I was willing, because of this game is kind of an exception in terms of just how difficult it is, I was actually willing to bend the rules. We've had a few occasions when the rules have been bent. But he said, no, he's failed. And uh, he, he wouldn't want to sully, besmirch the good name of the podcast with his ineptitude. So, uh, so that's that. We're down down to a three but don't worry we've got absolutely tons of superb correspondence from the community and i'm sure we've got our own tales to tell about our adventures with link so this was developed by nintendo r and d4 so this is the only game in-house game in the series obviously we'll come to the capcom developed games later on that was not directed by either miyamoto or ag elnima san i believe i think i'm right in thinking that 
so this was directed by Tadashi Sugiyama and Yoichi Yamada, and their credits going into this game were fairly scant. Uh, one of them, I think Sugiyama, worked on uh, Ice Climbers as an artist, and Yamada was uh, a programmer on Doki Doki Panic, which became westernized as Super Mario Brothers 2. I think that's the right way around. Um, I'm not currently looking at that information, so that's from memory. But it's something like that. They they didn't have the sort of um, you know a, a long-standing CV. They both do now. They've both worked on tons of famous Nintendo stuff since then, including lots of Zelda games. But back then, this was a uh, a new team where Miyamoto and Tezuka were still on as producer and writer, but they weren't the uh, they weren't the directors. Also, Koji Kondo was uh, supplanted by Akito Nakatsuka. And uh, and he composed some different tunes for the game. Uh, he was already uh, he'd already been around making Famicom games for a little while. He worked on uh, Devil World with Koji Kondo, but also Clue Clue Land and Excite Bike, the famous Happy Jingles from Excite Bike, uh, and Ice Climber was his as well. Um, and indeed, some of the tunes from Zelda Two, you will have got to know as they've reappeared uh, in subsequent Zelda games and also in things like Smash Brothers. More of which later. So this game came out, as did uh, the original Hyrule Fantasy, uh, on the Famicom Disk System, first of all, back in January 1987. Uh, There was quite a long wait, as was fairly normal back then, for the uh, Nintendo Entertainment System versions. And in in fact, in this case, unusually, uh, the PAL European version came out in September 1988, and the North American version followed a couple of months later uh, in December in time for Christmas 88. Uh, Following that, there weren't really any releases uh, to speak of until um, the game came out on the GameCube as part of the uh, Zelda Collector's Edition. Did it also appear in Animal Crossing on GameCube? I don't think it did. No, is it not in there? No, just just the the original Zelda. Um, There was a GBA version in... Uh, so that yeah, so uh, GameCube Collector's Edition was o three o four time. Then the GBA version, Nintendo Classics or whatever they were called, NES Classics, uh, two thousand and four, uh, and just early o five over here. So only ten years ago. Uh, the Wii Virtual Console versions were uh, 2007. Then there was the 3DS Ambassador program in September 2011. Uh, 3DS Virtual Console in 2012. And Wii U Virtual Console in 2013. So it's been released uh, the usual amount of times for a Nintendo game. Uh, that is to say lots. So uh, this game was a departure. But uh, nonetheless, the reviews for the game at the time were uh, largely positive. Now, I don't have... Tons of resource uh, going back to the day, but Famitsu, uh, I think it was called Tenshin Famitsu back then, uh, gave it a score of 36 out of 40, uh, based on their usual panel of four reviewers, giving it an 8, a 10, a 9 and a 9. Uh, that made it their second highest rated game in 87 behind only the mighty Dragon Quest 2 uh, and they were only two games to have received a Famitsu of uh, 35 out of 40 or above until 87. Uh, Nintendo Power gave it their game of the year in 88, uh, said describing it as an entertaining and natural step in the franchise's evolution. Uh, and latterly Total in the UK reviewed it uh, in 1992, so it was already getting on by that stage. Um, but they still gave it an 82% rating, although the graphics and sound ratings were, uh, were quite low, uh, understandably, by that point. Um, 
Now, Miyamoto has gone on record as uh, saying that he probably doesn't now consider this uh, canon as such. And there are a number of reasons, even a number of people suggested to us that we skip this one. I think Miyamoto considers it a gaiden rather than a sequel. It is the only sequel to the original Hyrule Fantasy in that uh, it actually takes place after uh, The Legend of Zelda, unlike any of the subsequent games. Uh, it sold a healthy uh, 4.38 million copies. I think that was in the original release. Anyway, who knows how many it's racked up in uh, GBA carts and virtual console releases since then. Um, but let's start with our personal histories with this game. So uh, age is probably relevant here because this is a game that's uh, the best part of 30 years old. Um Ryan is only just the best part of 30 years old. So uh, when did you come to this game? Uh, that's right. Um, let's see. I I was not even born when this came out, so I was not an early adopter on this one. Um, it's one that I had always been like kind of peripherally aware of again, and I always just kind of knew it was that like different, weird Zelda game. Um, I only really played it for this show. And um, yeah. I I had no desire to pick it up before, although I had played a couple other, like the demo of that Adventure Time game that had kind of riffed on the Zelda 2 formula. And so I, I was kind of aware of how it worked, but hadn't actually sat down with it until now. Sure. And how did you play it? Let's, uh, I think it's important. Oh, just miserably. <laughs> you know what I mean. Uh, on what format and how uh, how honestly did you play it? <laughs> um, well, I I have it on the 3DS, but I elected to play it on uh, on PC emulated instead, which you know, legality wise, yeah. whatever. But um, just because I needed <laughs> this is horrible. I needed to have my save state mapped to the left bumper yep. of my xbox 360 mm. controller and load state mapped to the right bumper so i can just mm. you know <laughs> this is the type of game where i just needed that extra I, I wasn't about to go fishing through menus to uh to load and save and all of that so yeah uh emulated this one um yep and uh what was the other question <laughs> well how did you um you know did, how much of a walkthrough did you use or did you try oh, yes. to solve the game yes. yourself um i ooh. I started off without a walkthrough. Yeah. Um, I thought that the version of the game that I had downloaded, because, you know, emulation is sometimes a little spotty. Uh, mm. When I got into a battle and there was no creatures on screen, then I went into a cave and I couldn't see anything. I thought that that was like the emulation <laughs> glitching out. Yes. <laughs> it just seemed like right. such a baffling. Like I, I realized now that I needed to get the, um, needed to get the candle to light the caves and everything. But yeah, uh, so I turned to a walkthrough to fi- um, just to make sure I was on the right track. And then I, I tried to tackle a little bit of it on my own, but found out pretty quickly I, I wasn't about to get anywhere <laughs> on my own. So um, especially towards the latter half of the game, I ended up following a walkthrough like pretty much letter by letter. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Now, Darren, I know that you, uh, you 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 had a heads up that we would be covering the Zelda games uh, in this volume of the podcast. So you settled down to tackle these early uh, Famicom stroke 
NES games uh, some time ago. Hmm, about How did that go for summertime, you? May. Summertime. Uh, <laughs> those who recall the previous Zelda podcast, I said I played this on a train back and forth to, from my town, Leighton Buzzard, to London. And, you know, half an hour back and forward gave me an hour's playtime each day. And I literally played this uh, straight after the first one because... I'm stuck on a moving tube on some tracks. What else am I going to do? Uh, so I thought I'd play uh, Zelda 2. Yeah, and I kind of had a inclination, a kind of a vibe, a feeling that we were going to do the Zelda games. And I know they're, they're big games, and you know they or, you know they can take a lot of time, some of them. And I weren't too sure about this one, because I heard mixed reports. So I was like, well, I better crack on with it now, just in case it is a bit unwieldy. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I rode the train for a few more weeks, and uh, yeah, played it and, and finished it. I... Well, I played all of it on the 3DS, uh, apart from <laughs> I got to the the big fizzy door at the palace at the end and I couldn't mm. open it. Oh, yeah. You uh, failed to drop off the crystals, yes, right? Yes, yes. I was one of those guys. So when I got off the train station stop at Leighton Buzzard, I quickly got home and uh, got on the emulation for PC and downloaded a save state, which, you know, other people have had the same problem as me. So there was a save state ready for me to carry on playing. Um you know, uh, like the game was intended, and yeah, and I finished it that way. So, you know, a bit, a bit of a bit of a sour, bit of a sour ending to an interesting experience. But uh, could you not have gone back honestly and gone to all the earlier palaces and dropped off the crystals? No, <laughs> I, I don't think I'd be here if that was the case because I, I was so deflated when I found out what you <laughs> needed to do. I was like, really? I was like, I can't. No, I, I, honestly, I I was in a bad way anyway. <laughs> <laughs> emotionally and yeah. I, th- I thought to myself you know what I'm, I'm really not going to go back through those hurdles just it, I, they, they should have told us like they, I know they tell you in the little blurb at the start he needs to put the things down to do the thing yeah the first person you speak to pretty much says says to do that but they, they don't remind you no it kind of just uh, lets you go oh yeah. well back you go uh, and that's it unlike, unlike modern games where it would absolutely make sure that you did it before you could do anything mm. else this game just lets you leave mm. um now i actually uh i was forewarned because you told me about this uh darren um but i actually thought it was quite logical anyway because it was obvious that there was more of the each once you'd killed each boss there was obviously more to the right Mm-hmm. to do so i always just walked right and if you walk right there's somewhere to stand and then the crystal gets automatically entered so i i don't yeah it i can see how you might miss it but i it, think it's the first one i missed um <clears throat> i hadn't really realized until the second one so oh, okay, but, right. thinking back about yeah. it now i think it was just the first one and for the second two i tweaked but at the time i was so enraged I, that I was just like no just let, let's get it done <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, it actually shows how many crystals you've got remaining in your menu. There's when you bring up the start menu, which shows your levels for each uh, for each thing. Um, there's actually a number of crystals down the bottom. So if it if it doesn't say zero at the time you're approaching the Great Palace, um, then you're in trouble. You've 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 boobed. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> any idea, both Darren and Ryan, sort of how many hours you ended up playing this for? My 3ds uh, thingy. T- time tracker it says about yes. 12 hours which doesn't include the great palace at the end so i'm guessing about 13 huh okay that's really quick compared to me right? uh, Any idea? I-, I did use a guide when i was stuck um so did i <laughs> oh, right, <okay. laughs> that's about half what i took yeah, i wasn't timing myself but no sure. uh, i'd spend probably like an hour on each dungeon and then you know quite a bit of time on the in-between space as well so Mm. Uh, and then the the last 
I guess temple it is, is, is quite long. So I can kind of estimate by doing the arithmetic, but I don't have any like concrete answer for that. Yeah, so looking at my Wii U, um, before I'd finished it, I was already up to about 21 hours, and that was before I'd done the, the last bit. So I reckon I was, yeah, it's probably 25 to 30 hours. And that's with, yeah, uh, playing it on Wii U, using playing it almost entirely on the gamepad um, while sitting in front of TV to stop me going insane. <laughs> um, playing it in the lounge with the signal between me and the Wii U slightly occasionally uh, crumbling between uh, as my girlfriend walked between the gamepad and the Wii U. But um, uh, it was it was worth it. Um, had the sound down quite a lot once I knew the tunes as well. Um, was it worth it? It's an entire uh, day of your life. Well, we'll, yeah, we'll come on to that. Um, <laughs> but yes, yeah, so I'd, I was I was save scumming like a mm. trooper, but I was I was doing the uh, I was happy enough. I, I I got the menus, the save the save reload menus down to a fine art. <laughs> um, so although I would have, I certainly would have liked the option to do what you were doing, Ryan, which is left bumper, right bumper. Um, mm. I was I was pretty quick at it by the end. Um, and yes, extensive use of walkthrough. So basically, what we're saying is Zelda two fans, we're really sorry. None of us has completed this properly. Um, two of us have failed to complete it to get on the show. But I think um, hopefully hearing from us and our correspondents as well uh, will give you some idea of, of what we think about the game, why we perhaps got to that, that point with it. Um, so uh, as we've already sort of alluded to, this game was a departure in terms of mechanics. Uh, this was a side-scrolling uh, action platforming game like so many games on the Famicom slash NES slash NES um, there's a few sort of unique things it also brought some things in that are now Zelda staples so it wasn't an, an entirely kind of you know separate entity um, certain things have remained certain tropes and mechanics um, I think it's yeah it's the only game where Link actually has a voice as such not not the voice that he started uh, getting in Ocarina. I mean, he actually says some words in a text box. Uh, when you find something in a room, that's uh, one of the villages. There are these 2D side-scrolling villages. Um, and there's one where you... I mean, again, this is one of the many, many kind of completely obscure things that you wouldn't necessarily work out. Uh, but there's an item, isn't there? Hidden under a tablecloth, basically, or something. Mm -hmm. hidden, hidden in the background of a screen. And you is that is that that's the mirror, isn't it? Is that the mirror? All right. He says something along the lines of, you know, I have found this item, which is something that he never does before or since, to my knowledge. Um, there's a few other regional differences, as there were with the the first game. I think the Famicom disc version again has a slightly more opulent sound because it has an extra sound channel, um, and obviously it had disc saving, whereas the cartridge versions had um, three battery backed save slots. I think that's right. Um, the US version had more colourful dungeons. They were the the um, the different temples were denoted by different colour schemes, and also Link had a had a new couple of extra pixels on him for a mouth, which he didn't have in the Japanese version. Not sure. And the villages are named uh, well. They wouldn't have been at this point, but the series goes on to name sages after the towns in, or these towns are named after the sages canonically mm -hmm. in the timeline. But. Um, as we say, the timeline that we're in here is uh, is after the original Legend of Zelda, 
the Hyrule fantasy, and this concerns a time when the demons are trying to resurrect Ganon, is that right? Yep, that's right. Uh, Ganon was defeated at the end of The Legend of Zelda, and so it was thought that if they kind of sprinkled the blood of Link on his ashes, kind of Dracula style, <laughs> then they could resurrect him. Dark. Mm, yeah. It's a bit dark for a Nintendo game, isn't that's it? That's why the only time you see Ganon in this entire game is in the Game Over screen, when he does his little yeah. like, ha, 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 laugh. We've got some great correspondence about that, that very screen <laughs> later on. Uh, another localization tweak that's interesting, and this uh, actually it's not really it's not so much localization as this was to do with the um, sort of growing awareness of photosensitive epilepsy. The original uh, game, when you died, had a rapidly flashing multicolored screen, um, which you know headache-inducing and potentially seizure-inducing. Um, so from 2003 onwards, it's uh, it's a blank. Uh, it's a blank screen, mm. uh, less less painful on the eyes. <clears throat> yeah, it's a red screen they changed it to. But I was playing it mm. on the 3DS today at the time of this recording, and mm. I died once because it's, you know it's this game and it's red, and then I died again and it started flashing, uh, you know, as if they had never fixed it. So oh, I'm not too sure oh, what's okay. going on there. But yeah, um, I, I was you know I was doing some research today before the podcast, and I was like, oh, I don't recall ever it being red because on the 3DS version, like I think like more than half the times I was dying it, it was doing the original you know Caesar inducing multicoloured no. rainbow vision how peculiar that is interesting uh, so perhaps one of the the most obvious differences between this and other Zelda games is the introduction of experience points um now, I believe the leveling up is slightly different in the original version where the Famicom disc version where every every um, so you've got three areas, uh, attack, defense and magic that you can level up. But I believe in the original version, it costs the same for each one each time. Oh, and you can so, choose which one you wanted to level up. Yeah. So the balancing is quite that makes the balance of the game quite different, I'd suggest, because you could end up in a you know kind of very difficult situation whereas the way they tweaked it so that it staggers means that you're kind of you're a guided towards an even leveling up aren't you so that you get kind of strong in equal areas as you go along unless you save up which you can do i think the balance for that is that um in the japanese version you could choose to level up uh, and get, you know, max out your strength and leave your magic yeah. all the way low. But I think if you died, right. then it would reset everyone to the like the lowest level. And so you kind of had to level them up. Oh, wow. Um, in okay. the way of the American version, but uh, or just the Western version. Yeah. And when you die um, in the version that we've all played, um, if you've saved up a lot of XP, you know, it can be towards towards uh, later in the game, you can get everything up to level eight, is it? Um, and that costs 8000 XP um, and you're getting between sort of one and up to maybe 200 for a point bag. Um, there are a few exceptions to that. Um, you can end up losing like seven and a half thousand XP if you die and you end up back at the uh, back at the start screen, <laughs> which is uh, you know one of the one of the ways in which this game um, feels quite punitive when you're not prepared for it. But that said, you know there is uh, there are some very smart I would say early examples of gear gating in this game. Um, mm -hmm. The world map seems enormous and hostile at first but by later in the game when you've got the hammer and various other things you can actually get from the start of the game to the end of the game in like sec you know seconds it 
it feels, and I, I don't think this will be the last time we say this, it feels like something that one might associate with a From Software Souls game at this point, yeah. where you find yourself kind of looping around from way into the game all the way back to the start. Another quirk of this, perhaps uh, again unique to this um, particular entry in the Zelda series is that this game has lives um, and probably as you'd certainly expect from a video game back in the mid to late 80s most games had tries or lives and, and continued to do so for some years this game had uh, you had two lives after your initial life um, but there are also collectible lives or dolls link dolls in the world um, one of which is I think one is maybe more but I only found one is in the great palace itself which gives you just one more chance to complete the uh, the great palace mm-hmm. uh, and the final bosses but um I think you know good players and there are good players of this game we're going to go on to talk about how how hard this game is clearly um but I've got a walkthrough of this game open here a video walkthrough um completely unassisted totally legit gameplay video of this game he completes the game and collects everything in two hours and 11 minutes (laughs) it's wild and he doesn't and he doesn't die as far as i as far as i'm aware so so to Mm. to, so what i think what we need to be careful of is to because i i found myself a lot of times thinking that this game was unfair like really unfair but i don't think it is i think it's just really hard yeah Mm. yeah yeah, I find the um, the XP system to be at odds with the live system. I've never really seen like I don't think it's happened since in my experience. But to have a, a live system and an XP system in a series that you know, because I was an N sixty four kid, at, you know, at heart <clears throat> playing those first and coming back, you know, I, it was just really it just made me feel a bit not uneasy. But it's just like, why would you have a live system in a in a game that's also got XP. Now, this is all just, you know, probably just teething problems of working out how to do a different style of Zelda game on a console that, you know, nearly every game had a live system. So I, I get that. But, um, yeah, looking like, you know, in 2015 when I was playing it, it, it put a lot of tension on the game, which, you know, which is quite cool. Like, I, you know, I quite, quite enjoyed that. I was, um, but at the same time, I was just... If, I just... That married with an XP system, it just didn't really work for me at all. And uh, it, it, if, if if Dark Souls had a live system, for example, then you know, I, if it booted you after the the game, you know, the, the front end, and you lost everything after, you know, you lost three lives, you know, I could see that being just as much of a nuisance. Uh, but I, I do like the introduction of or the introduction of a XP system in in a Zelda game. I thought it was quite novel, and it, it, you feel a bit more attached to Link. And you know, like Link's always meant to be like a conduit for the player. Whereas you know, I had a bit more agency over how I upgrade him or myself. I, I did mm. feel a little, a little bit more like I was him than in in later games. It was because I had a bit more choice, a bit more agency over, as to what I was doing. You know, I, I kind of appreciated that. Now it's not to say I want it in all my Zelda games, but. Um, you know some of the choices that they've done to, you know uh, to differ themselves from the first one uh, this was one of my sort of stand out like yeah actually I'm, I'm actually quite enjoying not grinding for XP but like the natural progression of doing a dungeon and watching it go up was uh, was quite satisfying but to lose it all to a live system is you know kind of just pulled the house of cards from underneath me it's just kind of just destroyed and just that one little mechanic I kind of wish you know it was like a an ongoing thing where you, you had your XP and if you died you, you know you kind of just did the traditional game thing and just 
you know, continue, okay, Sean, and you've still got your XP or something like that. I just felt like it's mm. far too punishing because you don't get a lot of XP. Like, you'll kill a bat and you'll probably get like two, and you're like, well, mm. I've got like 1200 points to get here. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of bats to kill. And I know different enemies have different levels of XP, but I didn't, I didn't really find fighting a lot of them that fun. They were clearly trying out stuff here um, in terms of finding out you know Zelda's place in the market in terms of they you know there were so many successful side scrolling action games on the Famicom on the NES that it you know it's hard to imagine now but back then it probably made perfect sense whereas you know the original legend of zelda obviously had uh, you know done well but it that was more of an outlier it, you know zelda 2 was a game that kind of looked like it fitted in with what was going on around more, kind of marrying the mm-hmm. typical arcade style side scrolling action with the kind of the map of the uh, of the and the the random encounters of the RPG and and the experience. So, I th- you know, I think it was sort of it was quite ambitious in a way, um, but obviously that doesn't necessarily dictate just how challenging they decided to make it. Is there any word that the the title, like the actual box art, displays Link's name more prominent than any other word on the box? Is that is that like a correlation to how they're designing the game? Like it's a bit left field, so let's slap Link's name front and center. Or was that like uh, an opportunity to make Link more of a prominent character? Like well, in, I think in my we, sorry, go on. I was going to say in, in my head, I found it to be because Link's name's front and center as opposed to Zelda's name that. They could do a few more uh, left wing, well, not left wing, <laughs> left field moves, and uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, just t- take some crazy bold steps that they couldn't before. But as we were saying, the original, the Legend of Zelda was actually called the Hyrule Fantasy: colon, The Legend of Zelda, as in the Legend of Zelda was not necessarily going to be the series name at that point. It was going to be the Hyrule Fantasy, so the Legend of Zelda, first one. So it's kind of weird that they called it Zelda Two: The Adventure of Link. I, you know, obviously it was a recognition thing um, because Zelda had become, you know, such a it had be, quickly become a kind of well-known brand. But it could have just as easily been Hyrule Fantasy Two: The Adventure of Link, and in some ways that would have made more sense. But yeah, it's interesting. Um, it, it, you know, part of our sort of remit on this podcast is to talk about our experiences with with a game and also you know trying to slightly understand the context of the of the production of the game in the first place Um, this did come out a year after the first castlevania game which i think it it reminded me a lot of and absolutely uh, (laughs) i don't remember exactly when the uh the arcade and nes ninja gaiden game came out but it was also pretty similar to that so Mm -hmm. uh, this did kind of exist in a context of of similar games and so it's probably trying to i don't know how how long development cycles for these types of things take so i don't know if it was inspired by castlevania but um certainly castlevania 2 took notes from this one and you know it was a very similar feeling game the kind of infamous castlevania 2 yeah, and Final Fan- the first Final Fantasy was 1987. Dragon Quest was already out. So there were lots of, you know, myriad influences, both on the RPG and the action side of things. And as I say, I think, you know, the intention here seemed to be a kind of very ambitious hybrid of, you know, a lot of the things that were popular in, in um, arcade and, and particularly Japanese gaming at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, you know, one of the things I wanted to say was for all this game's challenging difficulty level and frustration it was not you know i was gaming at this point i didn't play this game until recently i did dabble with it back in 
the early 2000s but that was it um this is the first time i've played it through but i was gaming in the mid 80s i was gaming from the late 70s and it was completely normal at this point in gaming for games to just control horribly to have mm-hmm. like for, for characters to jump unresponsively in in awful arcs and for combat to be glitchy and things like that now none of these things are problems with zelda in my opinion like link jumps beautifully his yeah. his arc yeah. is perfectly controllable he's responsive when you press the sword button mm-hmm. so none of those things are difficult or unfair the th- the thing that makes this game ch- really challenging all the way through is th- it are the 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 volume and the aggression of the enemy sprites <laughs> yep um they they you know they they have very small hit windows um they have some i mean most of them have predictable patterns again it's not so dissimilar to a souls game in some ways in that if you let them just attack you they will kill you very quickly if you work out their pattern you know when you can block you know when you can duck you can take them all out pretty much without taking a hit but it's sort of it's like what we'd consider you know people are talking about the um you know the 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 windows of um that you can control a fighting game character in you know in terms of one sixtieth of a second getting mm-hmm. you know connecting a certain move this this is that sort of level of control, but you're doing it over and over again in like very short spaces of time against different sprites and it's yeah it's really really challenging and demanding and it's one thing doing it like we did with save states but it's another thing doing it knowing that if you like get knocked off the ledge by a a swooping sprite that's one of your lives lost and lost and then you might have to go all the way back to the start of the game this is where the game starts becoming a stress it's the um it's the knockback effect that happens in both this game and other games of that time like Castlevania games I find them really hard to go back to now because I feel like I've like well, you have lost control of the character and it, it's kind of random in which way it will send you so you'll get hit from the front and his character your character will sort of slide backwards a little bit and it's sure you're invincible during that time but it it really throws you off your off your game and uh, mm. you know it can knock you back into another enemy and that kind of has a knock on effect or you will literally fall down a hole that you, you kind of yeah. felt like you wouldn't have if this game was made today if, for example like it wouldn't have been so punishing with its knockback you would have probably had like a little bit of a knockback but you wouldn't have slid off off the edge into a you know pit of lava I just you yeah. know the, the knockback thing yeah it really it really felt like it was uh, unmanageable mm. I do like the basic. Uh, the way that the combat controls and that you have uh, kind of two states you can be in, either standing up tall or ducking, and your shield mm. is automatically deployed, just like in Zelda 1. And, you know, while you're standing up, then you're shielded from any attacks coming at you from the front up above. And if you're ducking, then you're shielded um, from down below. And so you always have to be kind of facing the projectiles or the enemy sword strikes and you know block them and then retaliate and strike back and uh, most enemies especially the taller enemies you can either hit from the top or from the bottom and they had a similar system going on as well where they had Mm. shields that could block one or the other and i i was not able to work out a pattern for which Mm. one i should go for um sometimes like the skeleton enemies i had more luck when i was ducking but that could just be me finding patterns that don't really exist um but for the most part, I would just, you know, uh, sit myself beside an enemy and just kind of alternate quickly between 
standing up and ducking and just keep on swiping until yeah. I end up. And it, it just felt more like a damage race, which is not really that compelling a uh, um, a way to play yeah. this type of game. And so I think if it was a little bit slower and if it was a little bit more like uh, like Punch Out has a kind of similar system, and if yeah. it was more kind of tactical like that, um, kind of had the pace of like a Dark Souls type game, then this could have been like a. Mm proto dark souls because the the combat does remind me of that in many ways it's just it it feels too fast and a little bit too unpredictable but the system's there and it it can work if they were to spend a little bit more time just kind of uh like sanding off the rough edges it's it's got that classic uh you know that nes era game design where enemies just keep spawning if they're just off of the screen like Mm. because i I don't know if it's a memory thing or what but they will just go right there there is a guy who comes bouncing towards you've killed him oh there's another one because he's his spawn (laughs) is literally off the screen so we can get we're chucking another one at you and so you know uh, when that keeps happening you don't really feel like you're rewarded for fighting them because if they're just going to spawn another one much like in later games like Call of Duty is you know probably infamous for um, infinite spawn rooms it's kind of that similar mm. vibe of just like oh really you're just going to chuck another one at me just because I can't see beyond that doorway so it does feel quite unsatisfactory that way but I do enjoy the the shield mechanic like you say Ryan it's, it's, it's quite satisfying to hear the you know the clonk of the shield as you uh, as, as one of the little octorox fire at you but when in the thing, it's in the first dungeon when you fight that big guy in like in the armor and he's got his own shield. You're like, yeah, it's going to be a proper shield battle now. But his shield's up and he's like the sword's coming out of his shins and you're like, how are you? Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> why can't I? I mean, how can, why can't I do a low stab and keep my shield up at the same time? I felt like I was kind of outmatched, but it wasn't my fault. It kind of felt a bit cheap and it, mm. it looks it looks rubbish as well because it, it, you can you can see like an arm poking out from but between his legs it looks like it's just like mm. how, how are you doing that like, that's just ridiculous and <laughs> I, I, I kind of wish i had the same opportunity to cover my face but also stab my, from my shins yeah a lot of the time i think it is manageable and there are tricks and patterns to most of the enemies um it's when it when it gets overwhelming for me is when and actually, you know, because it was on 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 the NES, there, there's there's a there's a severe limitation to how many sprites there can be on screen. And if if it goes over that, which it does sometimes because of circumstance, you get slow down and flickering. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are areas where you know some of the harder enemies um, just seem to be you know the frequency with which they throw knives at you, mm-hmm. blue knights and things just feels unmanageable and maybe there is you know watching these these expert playthroughs there are ways of managing and dealing with this um and taking minimal damage but for me it it, you know for my level of skill and the amount of effort i was willing to learn to put into this game it was it was overwhelming at points but that said there were other times where you were talking about the stalfos skeletons ryan Mm -hmm. i completely worked those out what you do is you walk towards them because you, you, Link has a little bit of inertia in a Mario mm-hmm. style. Mm-hmm. And uh, unless you're kind of, you've got a bit of steam up, this doesn't really work. So you have to kind of take a run backwards, then take a run up. And uh, just as you're getting to them, you duck and thrust simultaneously. So you always hit them in the shins and they never block it. So that's a sort of good example of how you tackle that one particular enemy. And so Stalfos never scare me. I was always actually pleased when I saw those because 
because I thought, well, these I can get some experience points off and I won't take any damage because I know how to do these. But then there'll be other rooms where you've got multiple, diff- you know, three different types of enemies. You've got the skulls that are kind of, um, sorry, the ghostly type things that mm. are swooping around, coming backwards and forwards. Or you've got those golden heads which come up from the bottom of the screen. And on their own, they're no problem. It's just a simple bit of platform yeah. dodging. But it's when they pile two or three different things together <laughs> and it feels like, you know, you, you even once you've, you've racked your energy bar up to you know near the top end and i had by the end because i even did like a good few hours in front of the tv of grinding to make sure i had everything on level eight before i took to uh, tackle the last palace um which isn't you know that exciting in itself (laughs) um it still felt like you could uh you know lose three quarters of your energy bar in double quick time but there were ways of Again, there were the game does give you ways to deal with these things in the form of magic. Mm-hmm. So, again, without getting into the sort of the whys and wherefores of actually picking all these spells up, because again, some of them are very obscure and oblique, in my opinion. Like I, I wouldn't have found a lot of this stuff without walkthroughs, without or severe hints, anyway. But you have a sh- from very early on, you have a shield spell which dramatically reduces the amount of damage you take. Um, one later on, anyways. you get. A re- yeah yeah well that's it one room at a time mm-hmm. um that's that's it and you can obviously you can eat through your magic resources uh, reserves quite quickly but having it's, it's interesting to me that josh dropped out late saying that he hadn't done the great palace because for me the great palace wasn't the hardest challenge in the game in the end i'd heard so many things about it being one of the hardest tests in the history of gaming and Basically, I was cheating because I had a walkthrough <laughs> and uh, and I was save scumming. But actually, it wasn't anywhere near the hardest bit of the game for me. And, I f- and the last two bosses, I found a walkover. But, yeah, that was where I was forewarned and, and I knew how to get a life on the way. And there's a couple of red bottles. I mean, so many of the things that we're going to go on to talk about in this er- Zelda series of podcasts. The template is set in the next game in Zelda 3, you know, linked to the past in terms of, you know, the XP's dumped and you've got the heart pieces and the game throws out bits of life to you if it detects that you need it kind of thing. Whereas this game, it's like sometimes you'll hit a a statue. I mean, why would you do that anyway? It doesn't give you a clue. But there are statues that you can hit. Sometimes it will give you a red jar and a red jar is amazing because it fills up your magic (laughs) and once you've got the life spell you can use that to basically refill your life but sometimes it will produce one of the hardest enemies in the game (laughs) um and again if you know if yeah it's 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 got all that sort of obliqueness and obscurity of the era plus plus the sort of um, the very exacting nature of the combat. And clearly, it, as we'll hear from our correspondents and as we've seen from Sean and Josh, it it very quickly can be, prove, you know, massively off-putting. But what I found is that when I started the game, I thought, I'm never going to finish this. But once I got about five, to five hours in plus, I thought, yeah, I can do this. Okay, it's tough and it's not always fun, but... I, I get it now. I get how I get to the end of this. Mm. And obviously, you both did as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the spells are quite interesting in this game because they don't really happen in any Zelda game, you know, before or after. It's uh, you know, again, it's it's quite a unique beast in the fact that it, allow, it's, it allows you to turn into you know, Zelda is quite infamous or famous for its fairies, but you get to actually be one, and uh, you know, you get to fly around and you get, to, get to get to. Yeah, I, I used it as some clever. sort of like a 
Yeah, you, I, get, I used it as like a thing like, oh, this room's too hard, let's just try and fly through it, <laughs> you know what I mean? And let's see yeah. how that worked out. You know, it's, it's got a high jump, it's got a shield, and it's got some uh, mm-hmm. like thunder moves and stuff. And it, I, I quite appreciated that, because I, I remember like when Ocarina of Time was around, and the, the, the beta videos were around where, if you know, the Triforce was in that game, and you could get some magical powers, like... Yeah, like an eagle or something like that I don't know mm. uh, but I was kind of hoping that you know in other Zelda games you'd harness better magic like you could in this game and you know if I could be Navi for five seconds in Ocarina of Time for example and fly around in Kakarika Village you know that would have been brilliant so like, the spells in this game are really interesting but I don't feel like they're kind of explained well enough it's just fairy and you're like well what does this mean and if you didn't have save states back in the day which you, you wouldn't have done you'd have spent like 40 magic just learning what a fairy yeah. was and you're just like that's, yeah that's you can't really, get your magic really back punishing. reliably enough to make it worth it either yeah you know mm-hmm. like, like like you said Leon, like later zelda games and this is all down to iterative game design but late, in later zelda games they'll go right you spent a bit of magic then let's replenish that whereas this one's just like nope unlucky guy her or girl sorry about that you, yeah. you you tried this thing and you know you're gonna put you're gonna you know feel the effect and in some ways i really appreciate that because once you've done that you now know exactly what the fairy's gonna do because you learned the hard way or you learned the game's hard way mm. but at the same time it's just like oh man i really could have done with that like yeah. you know, I used the fairy at the wrong time, and it's literally forcing me to use a fairy to get up this wall. I can't mm. now because I haven't got any magic. And yeah, yeah. It, there, there was no, there was no in between. There's sometimes when they put like a, a a wall of blocks that you need to break with your sword at the end of a room. So if you do use the fairy, uh, you're stuck mm. as a fairy until you exit the room, and so you have to go back into the room that you came from and then come back as Link because you have no attacks as a fairy. You can only <laughs> you can only move around, which is a it's an interesting concession to make for a, what's kind of essentially an action platforming game is to give them a non-offensive, very nimble, uh, vulnerable, you know, form that can move freely, but lacks a lot of the basic offensive capabilities of the main character. And, you know, that's something I wouldn't mind seeing come back every once in a while. Yeah, um, mm. but apparently they wanted a, a Zelda game to feature a party system, and like they were going to do it for this one, or maybe a, a one after this. Uh, but instead, they opted for the fairy to be a playable character instead of Link. I think at some point they wanted a two-player mode where the fairy would go ahead and scout for Link and like be you know like an information center, like go, oh, look, I'll scout ahead and see what's uh, you know down the next corridor in the dungeon. But I think that was probably too technical for the time. So you know they, they had some great ideas for that. I really would like a sort of a Tales in Sonic Two you know mode yeah, where you just plug yeah. a pad in and get to be a fairy and zip around and see what happens but again I think the technical ideas were a bit too far ahead of the time um, and you know and learning the moves is very Metroid-esque you know it's very it's very Castlevania-esque in the uh, in the way you do it but again the way you learn these moves it's just, it's just too vague <laughs> a bit too like obtuse it's just like you know you, you end up in most of the time you end up in like a basement of someone's house and how mm-hmm. you get there I can't remember because it was just so obscure but it took me a guide to realise that you need to super jump or you know use the magic jump to get into the doorway above the, the cathedral <laughs> church area. I would never have guessed that because it is a doorway, but there's no ledge underneath the door to indicate that you could get in there. And again, it's just these a few little bits here and there. Just it just kind of breaks the game design for me. Yeah, and again, I, I always think it's worth acknowledging. Again, this comes back to the context thing and thinking about the time these games have developed. Like, I always want to stress that it's not about giving games a pass because they were. Uh, because they were written when they were written or 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 even respecting them more because of, of that. Um, you know, we, we enjoy them as much as we enjoy them. But equally, it is worth acknowledging that 
there was a different philosophy then you know people played games in a different way then people expected different things you know you there are different ways of looking at it you can say well games design hadn't really become a thing at that point it was just people were trying stuff out and you know some things worked and some things didn't some people enjoy stuff but i know there are people out there who would get more of a kick out of spending hours and hours just trying stuff and eventually working out you know what to do or getting it through you know like people talk about the fez effect in 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 the modern world for a, for a modern example of discussing it with other people and working out that way and they would get more of a kick out of having finally found it out so in a way we've kind of by using walkthroughs and having all that resource available to us we've actually done ourselves out of some of the potential enjoyment of playing this game so kind of the way we've played it with our 2015 plus we put a time limit on ourselves and all that sort of thing we haven't perhaps i think it's important to say that because there will be fans of this game listening to Mm -hmm. this podcast and we we try to give everything a fair crack but i think ultimately we're probably all going to say this game was too hard to be fun (laughs) but there there were elements of fun about a game like this and and again i go back to playing me being a 15 year old kid playing games in 1987 and a lot of games I would just give up on because I would never work them out and they'd be too obscure. But this would, that was normal. Like, that was how games were. You didn't expect to finish games. You got these multiple, massive, multiple screen, massive arcade adventures with completely obscure puzzles with no clues, no signposting. Sometimes you'd figure something out. Sometimes you'd get a magazine walkthrough. Sometimes a friend would tell you something. And when that happened, it was a genuine thrill. Whereas now we've completely eradicated those thrills from this sort of game because we've used walkthroughs and and whatever else. And we're just incredibly, we've been kind of softened up. But there are people out there who would still get more of a kick out of doing this, you know, the legitimate way, even for all its, you know, punishment. That said, I think most people would find this game incredibly frustrating and not want to finish it. But I don't think we should ignore those people Mm. who love this game and love games with the same you know the old-fashioned philosophy of you work it out you get good at it you know yeah, something but, we mentioned yeah. on the original zelda podcast was that you know people did love reading magazines and subscribing to fanzines and stuff so they, and I, I do believe that's you know still in effect for this game but i think because of the frustration factor on this game was higher for me it yeah, made yeah. it feel even more punishing because i was kind of angry at it at times and yeah yeah absolutely so you know it so the original Zelda, you know, we spoke about that and say, you know, playground talk and all that. But, you know, we, like you say, we don't have that nowadays or, you know, we, or we're too impatient or, like you say, we're softened up. And, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's really hard to kind of judge a game like this in 2015. It is. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it amuses me uh, to see all these people who, you know, have uh, NG++++++ the souls games not being able to get through this basically it's like this is a real yeah this is actually a properly challenging game like and i'm not knocking the the from software stuff because i love it but those games allow you to make it ultimately to make it quite easy for yourself um through trial and repetition and leveling up this game never lets you overpower yourself just doesn't Mm -hmm. it's it's, you know like i think there is an ng plus where you can go back fully powered up and kill bosses in one hit and stuff like that so so there's that reward but 
through your first playthrough, it's not like where you can go, well, I can't kill this boss, so I'll go back to that level where I can just harvest, you know, XP for five hours and then go back and do it because there are limits there. You know, it, it just stops you ultimately. And it comes down to pure, like, arcade action, side-scrolling 2D skills. You can't get around that. Whereas even the challenge of the From Software games, to an extent, lets you overpower yourself and kind of bludgeon your way through things, even if you don't have an enormous amount of gaming skill. This is how things have changed. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that's my observation as somebody who is very old. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, going back to all the other uh, spells and the, the gear you can um, unlock to do new moves, uh, I, I really uh, enjoyed that mechanic in this game. <clears throat> you know, it's quite commonplace in the in the series, but you know, seeing it from a two D point of view, it was it was quite interesting to see how they would put that kind of mechanic into. Uh, you know, I know we played Metroid Fusion and you know Super Metroid and all that, but seeing it in a Zelda game from a two D point of view was just it was completely fascinating. And the the downstab which I'd seen in Super Smash Bros. Melee first, I was like, mm. you know. I, and I heard all that music first in Super Smash Bros. Melee. Yeah. To actually hear it in its 8-bit form and see the downstab actually, a th- you know, an actual thing that was in a game before I knew, you know, it existed. It was just a, a complete fascinating experience. And, you know, part of the reason why I played through this game was to just to see how many things that later games that Nintendo have made have nodded back towards this because I think they, mm. they I think they do know that this game is a, is, a, is an outlier and it's an oddity but there are things to take away from it that are just yeah, completely yeah. Uh, you know um, magical and fascinating like the downstab yeah downstabs and upstabs these are moves that you learn as you go along again finding the moves can be quite obscure in some cases um, but the idea of learning extra moves off peculiar gentleman hidden in places is something that comes back over and over again in the Zelda series after this game yeah which is quite fun you talked about the music there and I think yeah that you know it's it's a it's a Famicom NES game so obviously it's limited to you know chippy sounding beeps um but I think there are some terrific tunes in here and I think that main dungeon theme which is probably Mm, the most famous piece is an absolute belter um it improves my mood of playing this sometimes incredibly infuriating game Mm. but i think my overall enjoyment of zelda 2 is reduced further because i think it's pretty ugly from from to my eyes even bearing in mind its age i played a lot of i played a lot of 8-bit games and i still do play 8-bit games and i think it's it's a it's i think it's a rough looking game Looking at the overworld map, I think it looks worse than the original Zelda game that came up before. Yeah. Like it's Absolutely. a step backwards in my eyes. I mean, it's huge. Uh, it's one of the biggest sort of overworlds in in the series in a way, and I think that you know that that cuts it some slack. But it, yeah, it's just blocks. It's just ugly blocks. Yeah, it has that kind of like Final Fantasy feel to it, where mm-hmm. you're just like a you're like an indication of like you're not. I think Zelda 1, like, you are supposed to be the size of your character and you're very much interacting with that world, whereas in Zelda 2, mm. you're, uh, you would be kind of... City blocks are as at the same size as your character sprite. Yeah. And it, it does give a sense of, like, you know, this is um, kind of an indication on a map more than you in this world. But uh, And so it, it increases that sense of scale. Um, you know, the enemies are just kind of icons until you encounter them and then it takes you to an entirely different screen and like a random encounter type of uh battle system um but uh 
yeah, there, there's a few, um, in the overworld, there's a few neat, like we talked about earlier, like using the hammer to break the blocks or using the mm. flute to awaken the monster, which is, uh, kind of reused in Pokemon years later, uh, yeah. pretty much note for note. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, just, it, it, it does have that same sense of, of secrets that the original Zelda had hidden in the world. There's, you know, trying to find the right grave to drop down into and, and find hmm. some sort of secret magic or whatever. Like all that is, is very cool on paper. And it kind of has that like Dungeons and Dragons type of exploring this giant world. And, um, you know, not everything is on screen and I, I don't know, that's cool. I, I just wish it was a little bit easier to, again, kind of my complaint from Zelda one was yeah. exploring the overworld felt a little bit too punishing. I wanted mm. to stay on the path because no random encounters would spawn. I wanted to just avoid as avoid the desert, avoid the swamp, avoid everything that I possibly could, which is not really a spirit that is conducive of having a fantastic adventure. Agreed. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the random encounters such as they are, I mean, it's, they're sort of not random because they, they basically, it spawns three creatures every few steps. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a particular number of steps, isn't it? That they always spawn at when you're on certain um, environments and the encounter you get will always depend on which sprite you bump into and on what environment. So it's not exactly random, but they do start to sort of crawl around the map randomly. And a lot of the time, as you know, a lot of people complained about this when they first came across it in Final Fantasy VII, because for a lot of people that was when they first came across this idea of fighting invisible monsters on a on a world map. Um, it's yeah, it just it just it just gets in the way of exploring. Mm-hmm. And actually, later on in the game, as I said, I spent several hours in the woods deliberately triggering this one action scene over and over and over again and i was getting 310 xp per time saving up first 5000 then 6000 then 7000 xp or whatever it is to get to make sure that i was sufficiently leveled up to take on the the later game and i got really good at those action sequences but um it's not the sort of thing that i would you know i was while i was doing that as i say i had the tv on and i was just playing on my gamepad but i was thinking you know, I could be playing The Witcher Three now, <laughs> something <laughs> like that. Um, yeah, and it, 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 it you know, that that word "grind" uh, is feels very appropriate here because it's not like in something where you're getting a massive kick out of every fight that you have. You have to embrace it in the same way as you do in any sort of JRPG. But um, yeah, it wears you down. Well, it wore me down anyway. Yeah, yeah that. that- that will wear me down in any uh, you know RPG, whether it be you know Japanese or Western. But the random element of it, it, it just it winds me up something chronic because you're on a mission to do something, and these things are just constantly tripping you up and throwing you into a two D action scene that I couldn't get out of quicker. Like I just wanted to hit the side of the screen straight away just to stop it from happening, and yeah. then you get another little bear and a blob chasing you, and you're like, just oh, just leave me alone. It's just terrible. Um, but the one time you do want to bump into one of them is when a fairy crops up in the month of three yeah. and you're like oh hello we'll grab that and then you can't actually bump into them so I don't know if that's like a one up situation where the mushroom's trying to run away from you or, or what uh, have you you. Can, you can bump into them mm. uh, I never and, felt like and, I did though <laughs> yeah no I, I managed to a few times and yeah you get full life back which can be a blessing especially if you're there's 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 one sequence when you're on the way to the great palace and by the way uh, those who don't know every time you game over in this game 
before the Great Palace, you always get sent back to the starting location. But once you get to the Great Palace, you start back at the start of the Great Palace. Thank the Lord. Um, one of our correspondents later will speculate as to why this may have been. But there's a, a, an awfully challenging set of what they call action scenes on the way there, which are invisible on the map. So you don't know when you're going to uh, activate them. But certain squares will contain an action scene, which will be a sequence of platforming. Um, you know, and uh, as you go on in the game, they tend to be more and more challenging with more and more enemy sprites, more and more pits that you can fall down. But again, some of them are actually perfectly reasonable and mildly enjoyable little sets of typical 8-bit platforming, you know, typical 8-bit action platforming mm -hmm. in the style of Contra or Castlevania or even, you know, with Mario-ish feel to them. And, and because Link is you know, responds crisply and uh, is quite manoeuvrable in the air and all that sort of thing. It feels perfectly fair. It's always when they start to ramp up the sprites and the ones, the sprites that loop round the screen and knock you backwards. And that's when this game always kind of takes a massive nosedive in its fun factor, as far as I was concerned. It's the, uh, in the random encounters and maybe in like in the general caves and temples and stuff, but it was the long sort of spiky... I don't know how to describe it, like a tentacle kind of pointing upwards that you could only attack the end of. And yeah. it was just too tall for me to do anything with until it shrunk down to my size. But in that time, you'd just get bombarded with just a bunch of creatures and stuff. And mm. you would end up sometimes being trapped between two of them. And you'd, like the knockback again would force you into another one. And it would just... Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I wasn't a great fan of the... Uh, I enjoyed the combat playing of the combat in this game. But it's the way it, it deals them out to you i just yeah it, it was kind of like the worst example in my, for me of random encounters i just didn't get on with it at all what was odd to me is uh, in some ways darren it sounded like sounds like you struggled quite a lot more with some of this game than i did in terms of the action and getting frustrated but yet your completion time was half, half what yeah, mine was. I, I, I don't know what happened there um <laughs> I, to be fair you don't have to win the random encounters either you just have to exit the screen uh, which oftentimes you have to slash through quite a few enemies to get to the end of the screen. But sometimes if you're able to just beeline it for the edge of the screen and you're able to escape without any real conflict at all. Well, yeah, some of the, if you, if you uh, knock into one of the, the weaker sprites in the, because mm -hmm. whenever they spawn, you've got two of the weaker ones and one of the stronger ones that roam around. If you hit the stronger one, you get a generally a nastier uh, action scene that's worth fewer XP, uh, annoyingly. Mm. And if you hit the weaker sprite, you get an easier one that's uh, worth more XP. Um, and like, yeah, if you hit the weaker sprite in the desert, you get no action whatsoever, actually. So you can't get any XP, but you can just simply walk two steps to the right and, and you're back in the game. It, yeah, I mean, it's just some weird, weird kind of stuff. There's like a lot that. of weird overworld stuff in this game. Like so some of the, the trees that, you know, like Ryan said, a one to one scale with Link, it, you know, it seems like some of them trigger areas that you can go in but there's no indication mm. that you can go yeah. there like you, you i think there's one crucial bit where you have to go to a part of the forest to pick up a thing and you, oh yeah. You, yeah you can't even tell where it is in in the the copy and pasted you know um tree icon because they're yeah. all the same yeah i mean there are little nintendo s clues um we were talking i can't remember if we were talking or someone was talking anyway recently about um the sort of visual clues that Nintendo give in 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 their games, um, they've been doing it for a long time. 
um, where there'll just be something out of place or the camera will surreptitiously indicate something. And I think there is some of that going on in this game, but I think it's quite subtle. But in other cases, like, so my example is sometimes there'll be a single square of forest in a load mm. of desert. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's a clue. Go yeah. there. Uh-huh. But yeah, you're absolutely right. One of the things that you need to do to complete this game is to go to this particular hidden square in amongst a load of other stuff. I mean, there is just no, there is no clue. It's not even like there's a little sprite difference or anything. It's just eventually you'll work this out or you'll read it or something. Yeah, yeah you'll, you'll speak to a character and they'll give it to you in five words because that's the size of the text box. And it'll just yeah. be like, oh, a little bit more. You're right in front of me. Talk to me properly. <laughs> Yeah. How about the bosses, the the, the temple bosses? Because one thing that interests me about this is generally um, they were, you know, uh, we were already at a point in gaming where bosses, they, particularly with Nintendo, um, they would be designed so that you could learn them and, and kill them by following a pattern mm-hmm. and not messing up. Um so in some ways, the bosses felt slightly fairer and easier than getting to the bosses yeah. in this game. I actually found the bosses quite fun. Uh, a lot of them, I think there was one fellow who um, was new to the Western version, actually, who swung like a yeah. ball and chain at you. That's that right. You had to yeah. jump over and, and slash him in the in the forehead and all. And that was, that was quite fun. And the, the dragon that would come up out of the lava and you had to, you know, hop your way over to him over pits of lava and, uh, and slash at him before he retreated back downwards and... I don't know. Like yeah, that really wasn't too hard either. Yeah. yeah although was watching like the comparison the video, it looked like it was much harder in the Famicom version just because it ran smoother and faster. Right, right. I really like the um, the kind of the jousting cu- uh, man on his yeah, horse. Yeah. I, f- I found that really quite... <laughs> it, bop him on the head. It, yeah, they that's put it. him in three it, times, didn't they? It, yeah. plays the, it plays into the downstab, uh, you know, my favourite move in the game, like absolutely down to a T because that's what you need to defeat him mm-hmm. or, or her, you know, you pop him off his horse and uh yeah and then you have a one-on-one fight as if he was a normal enemy from a from a temple is um yeah I'd, the bosses you know um i think it was kind of they got weaker for me over time because i think they just got harder so i got more frustrated yeah. and i was playing the game more so therefore i was getting a bit more frustrated with the game <laughs> so when it came to like shadow link or mirror link uh, you know i just found that to be an absolute nightmare um but yeah up until then like you know the horse head man um with his little I don't know what he's got, but he's got some sort of weird stick on a with a chain on it, maybe, <laughs> and knucklehead, <laughs> and um, the the guy with the uh, is he called Karak? He's got like uh, he's like a mage, and he, he he flicks around all over on the screen, and he fires like magical beams at you. I found right, that to be quite yeah. easy because you just, like like most of the bosses actually in this game, it turns out you can just beat them by ducking in the corner <laughs> yeah. and just stay in there, but. Some of them, I, you know, I, I really, especially the guy on, on this little horse that's jousted me, I found that to be really fun because there's kind of a build-up to it and, you know, sometimes you'd overshoot it or undershoot it and it'd catch you off guard. and Yeah, yeah you know, the, it, it kind of got the most out of the moves, I found. Yeah. Um, yeah, we just need to talk about the Great Palace. It is an odd one because it suddenly introduces a load of new monsters that hadn't been there in the entire rest of the game, some of which aren't that bad. And again... Uh, having a walkthrough here is invaluable and obviously makes the experience far less uh, troublesome. But still, these uh, these fiery dragon head things, they're not one of the harder ones, but it's its generally these knights, the red the red and blue knights, the ones that throw daggers at you and, and this sort of thing. 
they just throw dagger after dagger at you or or whatever it is that you know like it doesn't feel like there's a safe spot to jump between yeah. and get back on and you get knocked back and you just watch your health plummeting now if you take the optimum route through the great palace you get your health back a few times you get a you know you get an extra life but if you were doing this without any knowledge yeah and yeah you know the great palace as well there's like invisible walls that it's it's very yeah. common of those games or those era like sonic 2 for example you can blitz through some walls on purpose because but you wouldn't know that other than maybe a few clues but here it's kind of just like no it's just a wall that you can walk through I, there's no indication as to why no. or how but and it's yeah. mandatory it's not like just for a bonus bit it's like you have to go this way um, or maybe you don't but certainly it helps oh yeah it <laughs> helps dramatically if you do that and uh, I, I was lucky yeah. to have but I, I can imagine because you, you know it's, a, it's an immense palace as well and so if you're trying to do the whole like you know, I don't know, graph paper making notes of, of which mm. room is where and trying to map out a, a, create a map for yourself. Like it would just be a miserable experience to say, to look at it and say like, I've explored every possible place I could go. What am I missing? And for the yeah. answer to just be like, you have to walk through one of the solid barriers. <laughs> yeah. Like that's not yeah. fair or fun. <laughs> no. And again, that sort of thing was not that unusual um back then but yeah just uh yeah it might be realistic not that any of this is realistic but in the sense that you know if for whatever reason some devious evil genius made an underground catacomb or overground catacomb that had you know that was designed to trap people it probably would have completely invisible wall you know invisible secret walls in it for whatever reason you know purely uh sadism but um but it doesn't yeah not having any sort of clue not even a cracked you know, a little bit yeah. of cracked pixel art just to say, try try through here. Just one pixel, you know, just to say, oh, look, you can see through that bit. You know, the the joy I've had, and obviously this is preempting the next Zelda podcast, but the thing that really kept me going through this as well as making a show was the thought of playing the next Zelda game, you know, mm-hmm. the, uh, Link yeah. to the Past. But just seeing all the things that they obviously learn from the first two Zelda games and obviously we'll talk about that, this at length in a month's time but yeah like there are hidden you know, a lot of that game is a maze I'd forgotten like how much of getting around the overworld in Link to the Past is actually just working out where you can go and where you can't go but the difference is that it's not constantly like there are enemies everywhere but they're not that hard and you know as long as you get your life up a bit you will stay alive and you won't and you can just build your hearts back up whenever you want, really, if, as long as you're being sensible. And when there is a secret passage, there is a clue because you can see through it. <laughs> you know, it's like it's just all these things that they learned in the in the subsequent three years, only three years between the or yeah, four, I suppose, between 87 and 91. Um, and obviously it's 16 bit, not 8 bit. And that makes another huge difference. But it's fascinating and, and it will be really interesting to talk about. But, yeah, just the just the entire the the completely different sort of um going from a feeling of trepidation and frustration and fear to joy and exploration and sort of it's like such a different experience it's um yeah it's hard to believe that this is the same series given how different it is but that's definitely linked there with his pointy elf ears and his green hat you know that is and this is it's got zelda in the title (laughs) so yeah there's a few things at play, as I say, going back to the idea that actually the entire industry was learning its 
sort of trade at this point you know the games industry as such if you know obviously there there have been games in the 50s and 60s but really this was you know since pong and then space invaders the industry was absolutely brand new at this point so this was 10 years this was less than 10 years after space invaders Zelda mm. 2 came out and they were still you know just trying stuff out and seeing what worked and genres were you know some genres were uh, established like side-scrolling action games and they could do them on 8-bit machines um although you know it was a chat it was more of a challenge on home hardware than it was at the arcades um so that that's why some sequels ended up weird there also i think there was a general philosophy and there's probably examples that go against this but off the top of my head it seemed quite common for Japanese sequels to be a much harder version of the first game. So, like, thinking about Japanese Super Mario Brothers 2, which we know as the Lost Levels, Darren, you and I were talking the other day about R-Type. R-Type's a 1987 shoot 'em up same year as Zelda 2. In 1989 came R-Type 2. It's almost the same game, but it's about ten times harder. <laughs> it's, uh, it, it's like this is something that they did. This was like, okay, well, the fans love this game and they beat it, so here's more of the same, but stupidly difficult. Now, I realise Zelda's a bit different here because it's not the same sort of game, but in terms of the difficulty, it feels like, you know, and, and as we discussed, The Legend of Zelda got really quite challenging in the latter stages as well but um yeah there's there's some interesting factors at play that you know without someone writing the the novel on it obviously we've all got Hyrule Historia but it doesn't really go into the development too much um there's a lot of stuff that we'll we'll probably never know just want to talk about those capture those final two bosses um before we move on to listener correspondence Mm -hmm. so again I was forewarned um that you had to use your thunder spell to damage the final boss, which you probably could have got to this point without having collected. Is it is it gated so that you? I don't think there's any reason you would have had to get it. Mm, yeah, I don't recall ever needing to use it to get past exactly. the thing. Mm. So you might have got here without having the spell. Amazing. So that would have been wicked. But you get the thunder spell, and then actually, I found with a full and. As I say, bear in mind, I'd done grinding to the maximum level. And I think where a lot of people come unstuck in the Great Palace is that they haven't levelled up to the max, which is pretty much mandatory, I'd say. Um, and I've actually found the, uh, the the Thunderbird, the penultimate boss, pretty easy. Once once you've made it vulnerable, you only have to hit it in the face about, what, four or five times and it's down. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, it's dropping a few fireballs, but they're not that they're not that bad so i didn't think that was that bad and then there is the first uh ever appearance of dark link or shadow link and again if you don't know what to do and try and run around and fight him fairly you'll probably die if you squat in the corner and just thrust 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 thrust, 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 thrust <laughs> you can eventually uh, as long as you've got enough to take a couple of hits you'll probably win uh, and that is a real you know a real mercy to see that mm. yep. <laughs> Zelda wake up and those end, end credit curtain come down but how did you two feel about the final boss did you have more problems than I did was that just because I cheated I mean in terms of knowing what I was doing I, I found the um, the Thunderbird whatever it was called to be harder I, I guess obviously because I, I knew the Shadow Link strategy and so that was no problem but um, yeah yeah, it was a little like bullet helly, like you were kind of always just kind of weaving in and mm. out through fireball patterns and stuff. And so, um, yeah, it, it was kind of in, engaging in that way, but it wasn't undoable, obviously, but it was it was probably more challenging than in any of the bosses that I'd been through. And I wasn't fully leveled up at that point either. 
Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad I was because in the end, I think I died on, um, I actually died on Shadow Link the first time mm-hmm. um, because I started it with quite low health, but then I did Thunderbird again without really taking a hit and then Link, Dark Link was easy. Yeah, I, I don't recall Thunderbird ever being a problem to the point where I forgot it existed, but Dark Link was... Yeah, uh, <laughs> not only was I super frustrated from being locked out of the final temple, but you know to, to get to get through this terrible nightmare of a temple, which is kind of like the end of Zelda games for me, have always been like like the crescendo of the game. It's like you know this is all you've learned, like you're you're now you know empowered and super you know great at controlling Link. You know, uh, Skyward Sword, for example, has got one of the finest final temples of the series. Like, that was kind of like, yeah. But then then to get to this one, it's like, you're knocking on the door and no one's letting you in. That was kind of like, oh, brilliant. And then you get to the end, and while it looks really good with the pink background and the, you know, the silhouettes, I was just getting absolutely destroyed to the point where I wanted to just close the emulation on my PC and just just go to bed. (laughs) I just, I thought it would have been really cool if Link had a shadow throughout the entire dungeon just because, like, it would look like a lighting effect or something. And then right at yeah, the well end, yeah, it does that when he drops down pits, doesn't it? It's yeah, got that yeah. exact effect. So they could have done that. But yeah. it, it, that would have been cool for something that was there the entire time to be your ultimate enemy. It'd be kind of creepy in that way. Like a bit of foreshadowing, maybe. Yeah. Ooh, literal foreshadowing. Um, <laughs> would have been quite ambitious for a for for an eight bit system, but possibly possible. Yeah, yeah. A little Easter egg is that uh, the original Hyrule sort of appears in very blocky form in the Zelda Two map. Um, you can see that. Uh, in the corner somewhere of the of the of the world map, um, and another little oddity that must be mentioned is uh, the famous "I am error," mm-hmm. um, which uh, a lot of people assumed was a mistake, um, but actually not. Uh, error and bagu, which is uh, Japanese way of saying bug. Um, a lot of people assumed it was an actual mistake, but it was actually a joke on behalf of the developers um, and Bagu was supposed to be called Bug but the localization team didn't realize that it was a joke so he became Bagu but uh, kind of has the flavor of that like missing number from Pokemon or something but I guess it's not he's one of the very first people that you meet in the entire game and so it really really flavors the rest of the experience like oh boy (laughs) what am I in for you know those I mean yeah just the a lot of the sprites i think and and characters have are really lacking in character mm. um i think you know thinking about the the characters as the series goes on and it's not just about the fidelity of the graphics but that's certainly part of it i think things you know i think things stepped up in in quite a major way from 8 to 16 bit in that regard but yeah these characters are so kind of bland anyway that you just I don't know. Yeah, just like I am error. Yeah, you it's had the, the like the weird. generic man. You had the older woman, the uh, old man in the basement, and then the kind of like sexier woman who would invite you into her house and then yeah, like, yeah. restore your health, health you up behind yeah. closed doors. The old woman would restore your magic, though. Mm, yep, she, yep. she knew a trick or two. I know it's not a translation error because there's no way they could have possibly known. But I was uh, I was very amused to find a sign to Parappa Palace. Just yeah, like a right. little Parappa the Rapper. I, I kind of wanted uh, wanted that to be more fully fleshed out. But of course, you know, these series have nothing to do with each other. But uh, to find myself in Parappa Palace. And uh, it also was the first time that that excellent music from the temples came up because that was the first temple. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it was a 
good music and a parapazone. I approve of well, that. Well, maybe Messiah Matsura was uh, was a Zelda two fan. <laughs> Could it's be. not impossible. It's not impossible. I am Era, and the and the Bagu. Um, well, the, more specifically, mm. the I am Era was. It's kind of a, been an ongoing meme on the internet. You know, so yes. people like to mm-hmm. use those as, as fun times. But Nintendo actually referenced it themselves in Super Paper Mario and on their Nintendo Europe website. If you go to a four hundred four link. He, the, you know, mm. the purple man with slightly over fat belly says, you know, I am error. And I, nice. again, mm. like the reason why I do appreciate this game is because I, you know, you see why that has been a thing for years and yeah. it, it puts mm. it into context, into context for you. And the fact that Nintendo sort of referenced it themselves in a game and their website is, so it kind of just warms the cockles a little bit, you know? I wonder if it would have become a meme if it wasn't right at the very beginning of the game. Hmm. That's true, yeah. There's probably not so many things that relate to things that happened <laughs> towards the latter <laughs> parts of Zelda 2 because not many crazy people have yeah, seen it. Yeah. Although probably plenty have, uh, especially the hardcore fans. Uh, one of the things I wanted to mention before we moved on is that uh, this game, as we mentioned previously a little bit, uh, has a surprising legacy in the Super Smash Bros. series, starting with Super Smash Bros. Melee, in which they introduced an adventure mode, which... Um, they modeled one of the levels after uh, after this game's temples, and they, they reintroduced the music, uh, the fantastic temple music from this game, and reorchestrated it into the, one of the most beautiful arrangements in the entire Smash Bros. series. It's kind of become a an iconic Smash Bros. song. Um, so I, I'm sure that you'll recognize it if you're a fan of that series. But uh, yeah, not only the, the temple level, which is kind of in part inspired by aspects of this game and aspects of um ocarina of time um you'll notice the uh, I, I think the little shrine on the very left hand side is meant to uh, kind of represent either the elevator that link takes kind of metroid style to get down into each um into each temple which by the way weird that link is taking elevators but uh, magic whatever mm-hmm. um but uh, yeah. yeah, the adventure mode stage was kind of a 2D side-scrolling action type game, the um, type of thing that would eventually evolve into the subspace emissary in Brawl. Yeah, and uh, yeah, you were you're fighting through Legend of Zelda enemies, and I I don't know if you were locked in as Link or if you could play it as any character, but um, but you got the music, you had the kind of gameplay that this game had, and so it, it was yeah. a nice little homage to a game that you know was probably under or maybe maybe not underappreciated it was probably uh not played very much by the the smash bros fans i certainly would have appreciated the option within zelda 2 to completely swipe enemies off the screen Mm. with a with a plum instead of the poking away at them until they (laughs) pop right we've had uh i think a surprising amount i know it's uh it's a sort of famous game but i didn't know how much correspondence we get we've had quite a bit we'd like to include as much of it as possible Uh, And this time, Ryan and I will take turns in reading it to save your ears from too much boredom. But it is worth listening to what all of these excellent correspondents has to say. So I'll start uh, with Craig, who posted at canarince.com slash forum. Craig believes that The Adventure of Link is an interesting but flawed game, with its main flaw being its difficulty. It's not simply that the game is too hard, but more to do with the way it handles your failure. 
I always found that I had to redo a whole lot of stuff to practice on that on the bit that was actually giving me trouble any time I died, which is often par for course in older games. However, when exploration is one of your main tenets, this becomes a much greater issue. The penalty for death is such that I found it a pain to explore rather than a joy and a relief when I actually made progress. The obtuse nature is also ramped up somewhat in this game, with certain parts being completely unfathomable without a guide at hand. Because of the difficulty, I was reluctant to just wander aimlessly and try and find the solution because I would probably die just trying something out. The difficulty didn't add to the atmosphere, it just felt restrictive and not very fun. There are also certain areas that I figured was just a crapshoot on how much damage I'd receive, like the area where lizards are throwing rocks at me. (laughs) In all honesty, I don't have great memories of it, and I would probably be reluctant to recommend it, even with the caveat of abuse save states with an emulator. Something that has always bugged me in Zelda 2 is that through the whole game, when you die, you are sent back to the start, except at the very last temple. It's a welcome but baffling act of clemency. Why now? Is it just because the last temple is so long? Seeing how the Famicom Disk System version works, I think it's more to do with the technical side. The game loads on side A, and then immediately after the title screen, it asks you to change to side B before you even get to the scene of Zelda sleeping, which will no doubt be etched in your memory by the end of the game. The first time it asks you to change to side B is when you start the final temple. If you were to die on the final temple and sent back to the start, you'd have the frustration of having died, compounded by the need to get up and change the disc around. Maybe this was taken into account when planning the game, allowing them to have a huge last temple, as there was little else on that side of the disc. Good theory, Craig. I think you may be spot on there. Yeah. Crocifer says, I received the game as a gift, probably Santa, ho ho ho, when I was a young fella, and it was way too hard for me. I finally got back to it earlier this year through the magic of emulation, and, well, it was still way too hard. However, I got through it with the help of an online walkthrough. I can only imagine what it would have been like to plug through it with nothing but grit and word of mouth. Hellish. Fun, absolutely, but hellish. Thanks, Crocifer. Next up is Kosain, also posted at the forum. Kosain says, Part of what made finishing a Zelda game so rewarding and magical was how a lot of us played video games back in the 1980s. I initially played most of my NES games by renting or borrowing them from a friend. Arcade experiences were similar. You might play Bubble Bobble many times without bringing enough quarters and a good enough partner to seriously attempt finishing it. You would hear about the ending of any given game, often with a spoiler about three words long, way before you got there. But you wanted to see it for yourself. We would often two-person play a game rental to avoid wasting any of our limited time with it. And for Zelda games, two people figuring out the puzzles was definitely better than one. With Zelda 2, one thing I noticed was that renting or borrowing was a huge help because you could snoop around in other people's saves who had gotten further than you did. (laughs) I remember coming back to Death Mountain with someone else's levelled up link and exploring the parts that had confounded me. It's a really horrible death maze the first time you encounter it and the long commute from the start point increases the tension. It's the most Dark Souls experience in the game, in my opinion, though each of the palaces feels the same way to a lesser degree. Neogaza says, Zelda 2 was the first NES game I bought with my own money as a 10 or 11 year old kid. The sole reason that I initially wanted it was because because of the fact that the original Zelda already attained a mythic status on the NES, and the simple fact that it looked like it was going to trump the original in every way imaginable. That, and that fantastic looking golden cartridge. 
Combat was great, and those side-scrolling scenes made Zelda 2 have an identity of its own. Reminiscing now, the only thing I vividly remember of Zelda 2 was the final stretch, where you fight your dark alter ego and the final boss. I must have tried that part a hundred times, and every time I tried, I failed miserably. In hindsight, it wasn't so much the fight that made it hard, but the run-up to the final battle that made it a horrendous experience. After months and months of intermittent runs, I finally succeeded in slaying the final boss. It was a gloomy Sunday. It had been raining all day, and there was nothing to be particularly cheery about, but I always remember the sense of triumph that I experienced on that particular moment in my small bedroom playing on a black-and-white telly. If nothing else, Zelda 2 taught me that perseverance is key in life. I would not recommend anybody play the game nowadays, as it has aged horribly, and the difficulty is very steep when compared to contemporary games. Nevertheless, Zelda 2 will always be fondly remembered, irrespective of its of the many flaws that it had. Thank you, Neo Gaza. Next up, we have an email, one of two in this podcast. Thank you. Always email us uh, if you like. That's to podcast at canarince.com. So this is from Paul L. Snyder. Zelda 2 is an important game, if not as important as the original Zelda. Even more than that first game, though, it feels like a forerunner of the modern action RPG. Looking back at Zelda's 1 and 2, the clarity of the aesthetic split between the home computing and console gaming worlds is striking. With these titles, we're close to the birth of many of the conventions that plague modern console and console-inspired games. Quite a number of the design choices made in modern games trace their origin to a single factor, the limited storage of second-generation consoles. Complex save game states had been a reality on home computers for many years, but the battery-powered RAM in these early Zelda cartridges was a novelty on the console. To deal with a minuscule amount of available space, programmers had to squeeze all the state down to a tiny number of flags and variables. In play, this leaves one feeling as if one's impact on the game world is minimal, as one repeatedly fights one's way through the same brutally difficult obstacles until that ratchet clicks forward just one large tooth notch. It's instructive to compare this to a game that was, at the time, one of my benchmarks for home computer RPGs, Ultima 4. Ultima's world is sprawling, huge, detailed, and, at the time, provided a great feeling of having a real effect on another world. With up to eight characters in your party, you would find better weapons, more spells new reagents interact with NPCs. The game experiences one of more nuanced growth and advancement, but more than that, it made information one of the key currencies that you gained as you moved through the story. Zelda 2's NPCs are frankly dismal and characterless, slowly scrolling out their single abbreviated sentences when you pull their lever, except for the few who will invite you inside because you completed an obscure task that flipped a flag. And then, compare the endgame experiences. Ultima 4 contains plenty of old-school, puzzly unfairness in its final dungeon, but its climax is a summation of all the information-gathering, item collection and skill-building that had come before. Zelda 2 can do nothing except ramp up its difficulty with ever more obnoxious enemies and lethal environmental, environmental puzzles. Its climaxes are driven by that other console convention, the boss battle. Later Zelda games turn bosses into well-crafted action puzzles of a different kind, with level design that leads you through the process of developing the physical skills required to beat that boss, as well as broad hints about the strategies that will likely be needed based on the major item you most recently acquired. Zelda 2's bosses and dungeons and puzzles are not of this logical, well-crafted type. The game's propensity for unblockable rapid-fire missiles is an exercise in pure frustration. 
Everything boils down to jumping a lot, maybe ducking and spamming that standard horizontal sword thrust. And woe betide you if you took too much damage reaching the boss or used slightly too much magic. Zelda 2 has many elements of a good game. The platforming-based exploration is often fun and there is satisfaction to be found in killing previously difficult enemies as your skills increase and you gain new sword moves. Link himself moves responsively and the controls are generally good. On the downside, the overworld wandering monsters quickly become tedious, particularly as you move towards the endgame. Too many enemies are immune to your sword-fired missile attacks and the game is much less fun after you lose the faintest sliver of health you lose the ability to fire them. Since you spend most of the game in a somewhat damaged condition, this is quite annoying. Your spell points are also far too limited. Even though you've been given some cool powers, they must be hoarded, and thus what might have been fun expansions to gameplay end up having little effect. The information-based puzzles are among the worst I've seen, guessing that you must press the button by the fountain to get water. Finding the hidden town of New Casuto, unclear talk-to-that-dude quests, hidden passages in dungeons without any cues at all, hidden action scenes in the overworld. My least favourite console trope is the save point, which is almost always poorly placed. It's a design choice that typically leads to horrible, boring, gruelling trudges through previously conquered obstacles to reach a difficult challenge. This prevents the player from ever entering a flow state, making it much harder to build the skills to deal with the actual difficult part. This is even worse when the post-death Reprologue must be executed perfectly lest the boss battle be entered with diminished resources or you simply die outright missing a jump and landing in lava losing your last life one of the most surprising things about my just completed playthrough of zelda 2 is how much of it i remembered i played both zelda 1 and and 2 on a friend's console in college and zelda 1 made quite an impression i've since gone back and beaten the first game twice in emulation i attempted a zelda 2 playthrough a couple of years ago and didn't remember its gameplay at all as I revisited it again in December with the intention of playing along with Kane and Rince in 2016, memories of the skulls on the bridges and spell-giving old men underneath the towns came back to me. This is clearly not a game that became part of my gamer DNA, despite some lingering re- uh, recollection of gratification at finally being able to cross a bridge. For certain, this is a game that neither I nor my friend ever finished at the time. If it were not for the features of modern emulators, I would never have completed Zelda 2 this time either. There's quick saving of states sure but i was particularly delighted when i discovered that it's possible to run the game backwards to before a mistake was made uh, i assume you mean sort of forza style uh, or like a rewind button as someone who never enables cheats in games this caused a bit of soul searching but the issue is ultimately one of pragmatism i have zero desire to devote the amount of time it would take to actually become good at zelda 2 when there are so many more interesting deeper experiences to be had I don't enjoy videos of game playthroughs, so watching someone else play Zelda 2 would just be tedious, particularly for coordination-based games like this. The experience of playing the game is perhaps the only important part. In this case, I'm willing to sacrifice the possible highs that actual mystery, uh, that actual mastery might provide on the altar of reduced frustration, and finish the game I did with its no-you-can't-heal-before-the-second-final-boss-fight and the curtain falling on its predictable kiss-the-rescued-princess-denouement. In the end, the experience of Zelda 2 is one of interminably repeated, infuriating slogs through the same environments. It's a game that's very difficult to recommend to most modern gamers, even the enthusiasts and completionists. It's true that it is beatable with enough skill, and clearly some people find it fun, as many YouTube speedruns will demonstrate. 
However, unless you have a calling to become a retro monk of the NES or absolutely must master every Zelda game ever made, just play it a bit to get a feel for its place in history. Use an emulator, walk through and grind a lot. If you put the game aside after falling to your death for the 20th time or after being massacred by yet another blue iron knuckle, you'll likely be in the company of nearly every gamer who's tried this game. Uh, Couldn't have put it better myself and haven't or didn't. Thank you for the excellent email. Lengthy one from Paul. Galapinto says, The two Zelda games for the NES were the only Zelda, uh, the only games in the Zelda series that I hadn't beaten. I got both of them for the 3DS to play along with the podcast, and while I was a bit wary of the original due to its age and alleged difficulty, I ended up having a pretty good time with it. I started playing Zelda 2 with significantly more reservations. I'd never played it before, and it doesn't have a very good reputation. Most people seem to agree that it was bizarre and ill-advised departure from the series that Nintendo was wise to never return to it. That's why I was surprised at how much I enjoyed the game. I actually enjoyed the NES Zeldas equally, though, granted, I went into Zelda 2 with lower expectations than the first one. For me, both games were quite enjoyable for the first half, and then difficulty spikes hurt the game later on. I thought the side-scrolling combat was pretty fun, especially when you got the downthrust technique. There were certain enemies that felt unfair, like the ones that were only hurt by fire and those obnoxious packs of flying eyes, but once I was able to reliably take down an iron knuckle or successfully block three boomerangs in a row and kill the Gorilla, I was having a lot of fun. The RPG elements that let you level up also made it really satisfying to return to earlier areas and easily defeat enemies that tormented you before. I actually think that overall, Zelda 2 is more fun if you try not to use save states because this normal loop is built on the idea of making some progress in a dungeon, dying, coming back stronger, getting farther in the dungeon, dying, and repeating until the dungeon is finished. While using save states might seem easier, I think you miss out on getting a rhythm and building up those experience points. My biggest complaint about the game is the final temple and the lead up to it. Though I was surprised by how much I enjoyed the game, it's hard to overstate how terrible the ending is. Just getting to the final temple is unbelievably frustrating because you're constantly getting knocked into lava by those floating eyes. If by some miracle or heavy use of save states, you make it to you make it to the final palace, you have to get through floors and floors of repeating assets, cheap enemies, and dead ends. When you finally get to the Thunderbird boss, you might you must have lots of magic just to be able to damage it at all, and it's an extremely challenging boss. Once you beat the boss, you still have to fight an overpowered Dark Link in the next room. I know I said that I thought the game was better without save states, but I genuinely don't understand who would want to finish this particular section without them. It took me at least 25 tries to beat the two bosses, and and the thought of having to repeat the entire temple every three lives would make me tear my hair out. So overall, I was pleasantly surprised by the game. It's nowhere near my favorite Zelda, and it has some pretty clear flaws. That being said, that's how I felt about the first Zelda too. For me, it was a link to the past that fixed all these issues with the game and went on to become a masterpiece. As I was playing through this game, I was wondering if A Link to the Past had been based on Zelda 2 instead and fixed all the problems and difficulty spikes and still added those beautiful graphics, what would the Zelda series look like today? It's a good question, uh, but I suspect it would still be, it would probably end up kind of like it is a 3D action game anyway. <laughs> 
Uh, I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe it would have been more action oriented. Anyway, pure speculation. And we're running uh, out of time. So on to Andrew Brown who says Zelda 2 may be one of the most important Zeldas. It shows that the series is not just a formula, that a tiny bit of its essence can be captured in a game which you would otherwise be forgiven for not recognising as part of the canon. In spite of its greater emphasis on character stat development and shift to a field of battle when encountering enemies on a tiled world map, clear signs of influence from burgeoning console RPGs, players still develop Link into a stronger and more diverse fighter by exploring towns, caves, forests and dungeons, enhancing the PC through the spoils of exploration. Similarities to Final Fantasy or Dragon Quest are superficial. One cannot simply grind their way to success. This apple may have rolled quite far from its tree, but it carries with it still the Zelda essence, power via discovery. While the great emphasis on side-scrolling may be alien and alienating to long-time fans of the series, I must cast myself as apologist to that design uh, design decision. Particularly in the top-down classic Zeldas, Link is more of an acrobat than a warrior, dodging in and out to get in hits on enemies. The Link of the Adventure of Link, however, is a bruiser, and he is only able to be so because of the side-scrolling design. He does not dash in and out, dealing a quick blow when the moment is ripe. He stands toe-to-toe with his foes, absorbing their melee attacks with his shield, a thing no top-down Link would dare to try, retaliating with a comparatively diverse repertoire of swordplay. He does this because, thanks to only being able to move in two directions, he has no other choice. This sense of power is stunted by the game's difficulty and learning curve, but once players adjust, Zelda 2's Link feels like one of the most powerful in the series. This serves to make the boss encounters even more intimidating. These are enemies even this powerful Link cannot go toe-to-toe with, and as the player regresses into hit-and-run tactics once more, they feel, if only subtly, the terrifying strength of these guardians. It is no accident that the Link of Super Smash Bros. feels like it was pulled more from the adventure of Link than any other game, and as Zelda broke through the polygon ceiling, this brute of a hero was resurrected. It may be limited by the technology it's played on, but the sword and shield play of more recent Zeldas would not exist without the experimentation at play in Zelda 2. To players of the late 1980s stepping into the adventure of Link for the first time, this new form of combat must have felt like what happened with swordplay in the more recent Skyward Sword. Crude, clumsy, imprecise, infuriating, but a glimpse into what would come. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, And lastly, David Camacho, via email, says, I'm usually too busy or distracted to contribute, but I just had to take some time for Zelda 2. Everyone knows how different it is from what we now consider the typical Zelda game, but it is exactly that that makes it so memorable for me. I'll be honest, as a kid, I didn't like it. I think I was about five when I first played this at my cousin's house, and I remember being a hell of a lot more confusing to me than the first game. Worse yet was that I I was actually incredibly scared of the Ganon that would appear when (laughs) you got a game over. My cousins purposely die to get a game over just to freak me out. I remember even that pulsing death sound terrified me because I knew that it was after that the flashing mess that the strange portal to hell would be open. The TV would turn blood red and the black demon himself would come out and laugh at me or worse (laughs) to five-year-old me. This was all too real. And I would run and uh, I would run and cry from the room. I even had nightmares where, (laughs) Oh boy. I even had nightmares where I could see the little overworld sprite of the horned humanoid walking towards my house, laughing that damn NES ha, 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 ha laugh. (laughs) Jesus. (laughs) 
Sorry, we don't mean to laugh. This is a child. No, it's, it's great stuff. <laughs> Uh, anyways, obviously, we look back on those times and laugh now, but a few years ago, I realized I would never actually beat in Zelda 2, so I decided I should finally get around to that, and so I pledged to to fi- uh, try and play it without relying too much on internet and no save states. I'll be mm-hmm. honest, I found it to be one of the most uh, refreshing and invigorating Zelda experiences I've ever had. For a Zelda game, even now, its world felt bigger than any other in the series. A huge world map to explore with many different towns to visit, deserts to cross, mountains, mountain cave to explore, Vesalfos infested canyons, and even oceans to sail across. You had, uh, you even got to traverse through the original Zelda's map scaled down to, uh, to really give you a feeling for how massive this world is. This truly was an epic adventure where you had to make a long journey where you had to make long journeys through the dangerous wilderness to reach your destinations. The world felt huge, alive, both both thrilling to explore and yet terrifying, because you knew that at any moment you could be ambushed by monsters. Sure, sometimes it was just slimes, but it could be much tougher variants like of Moblins or Lizalfos. The world was not a safe place for your average townsfolk, or even Link had to be careful out there. When you finally did get to a dungeon, you'd be greeted by that absolute, absolutely amazing palace theme. It's at these points, too, that the game felt more like Dark Souls when you have to fight humanoid enemies. You can't just run and slash your way to victory uh, against an iron knuckle, or those guys were, uh, mm, those guys were definitely an, an intimidating test of patience and skill. I absolutely love dueling with the humanoid enemies in the game, aside from the final boss anyway. Everyone felt like a fair fight when it all boiled down to your skill. Though though you could use your magic for a little bit of an edge with your shield or healing spells. The spells in this game are another aspect that I absolutely love and I wish they would revisit them in newer games. We saw some magic in A Link to the Past in Ocarina of Time, but Zelda 2 is where Link truly peaked as a a spell-sword-type character. You have so many utilities for your spells, from boosting your defense or even transforming into a fairy to hightail it out of dangerous areas and offensive spells like fireballs and lightning storms. Link truly had a wide array of options, and I, I could only imagine how amazing something like this in a newer Zelda game could be with even more spells to choose from. I could rant about this game all day, but I feel like I've gone on for too long already. Uh, I know it has some flaws. It could be confusing, and I definitely recommend people drawing out maps while exploring the dungeons. It just adds a feeling of exploration, and it makes you really feel like you've conquered these trials. Honestly, my only complaint about the game is that you lose all of your experience points when you get a game over, which is infuriating when, when you... When you were at like 7,500 out of 8,000 XP, and that last boss is almost impossible unless you cheese it by fighting him by crouching in the corner and standing and stabbing wildly. I'll have to go back at it and try to beat him legit someday. <coughs> yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> right. Very quickly, Ryan, you've uh, done a bit of capturing of other Zelda related items uh, that happened at this point in the Zelda timeline. Uh, well, no, not in the Zelda timeline in <laughs> right. the game in the real world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, as we were kind of compiling this uh, this list of the definitive uh, Zelda series canon rinse, I wanted to 
take some time to examine the kind of peripheral products, the, the games that didn't quite make the cut as for uh, what we'd be talking about. And so in each issue going forward, I wanted to just briefly mention the stuff that, that kind of came out on the side that bears a Zelda name as well. Uh, the first of which was the Zelda Game & Watch game uh, system. It's back when Nintendo was putting out these little handheld uh, Game & Watches, which Smash Bros. players will also be familiar with. Uh, this was a dual-screen Game & Watch system that came out in 1989. It has a kind of clamshell design that would remind you of what the 3DS would later look like, and the DS, I suppose. Um, this was the penultimate Game & Watch release. The last one was uh, Mario the Juggler. And it was also released on Game & Watch Gallery 4 in 2002 for the Game Boy Advance, if anybody wants to go back and play it. Although it was the hardest-to-unlock bonus game, and uh, it was also released as a Nintendo Mini Classic in 1998. Uh, this was actually a pretty interesting game. You, It, it, um, it played a lot like Zelda 2. Um, there were little single-screen rooms in dungeons, um, and there was an enemy that uh, sat all the way to the to the far right side who would poke at you with his sword. Um, you could progress towards him and you can back up and that's how you would avoid getting hit by him. Um, and while you were stabbing, you could hold that button forward um, and that would send your shield behind you to shield you from fireballs, which were being fired at you from behind. And there was also a little fella beneath the floor who would poke up at you through the floor and so you're always kind of dodging in between uh you're trying to lure the enemy behind you uh to the very left side of the room so you can charge to the right and stab this this enemy um at the right side of the room once you defeated him you got to move up a floor and then after four floors you got to fight a dragon and uh beating each dragon would reward you with one one eighth of the triforce i believe it was and once the Triforce is complete, you can save Princess Zelda. Uh, in 1989, the same year, uh, they came out with the Legend of Zelda Game Watch, which is a dif- different thing from the yeah. last item. Branding. Yeah, it is a watch made by Nelsonic. And it was uh, uh, one of those kind of, not a smart watch that has a different meaning these days, but it was a watch that had more functionality than just telling time. You'd wear it on your wrist, just like a regular watch. And uh, you could play a very, very miniaturized version of the original Legend of Zelda. It had four dungeons uh, with four rooms each. I haven't had the chance to play this because it's not been emulated or recreated anywhere, but it existed. And I just wanted to uh, just pay attention to that. Uh, It was based on the original Zelda game. And I also wanted to briefly mention the Legend of Zelda cartoon, which uh, was made by Deke and... um, I guess it was released concurrently with the Super Mario Brothers Super Show, which is probably a little bit more famous these days. But the Zelda cartoon is an oddity. I don't know if uh, anybody else on the panel has, has watched through any of it. but Never seen it. No. Yeah. It, um, Link has a voice, regrettably. Yeah. Um, hmm. He is a, a whiny, awful, awful brat character. Uh, he's... American, presumably. <laughs> yes. Very much so. Um, yeah. Uh, he's a yeah you know kind of a typical swashbuckling hero but um it's just a very whiny kind of an anakin skywalker type of hero uh always looking for a kiss from the princess i had a few weird catchphrases like kiss me princess and the uh mentioned earlier in the podcast excuse me princess 
isn't really in keeping with the uh, the link that we always imagined from the games, but maybe that's why they decided to make him mute. Um, that catchphrase was spoken on 29 occurrences throughout the 13 episodes of the series. Um, it's, it's horrible. Uh, although I, I will say that references to the game are pretty accurate. The background music is lovingly reorchestrated. Uh, versions of the nes classic songs and they actually sound wonderful Uh, the enemies are properly named and look just like they do in the instruction booklets Uh, sometimes they even require uh, the use of the correct item Uh, i link would use the correct item to defeat them just like he would in the game and there are um, many references to the way that things worked within the first two zelda games like uh, there are statues that come to life when touched and stuff like that um kind of strange the bow and arrow and link's sword fire lasers kind of like link shoots lasers out of a sword when he's at full health uh link never strikes anything with a sword presumably to keep the show's violence rating down Mm. and um link's voice voice actor would later reprise his role in captain and the game master another nintendo themed cartoon um Zelda is far less of a a damsel in distress in this game is more of an active protagonist often fighting Ganon herself and King uh, Harkinian would later Mm. appear in the CDI games and in the comic series so there's that kind of little bit of connectivity there Uh, there's some strange adventures that go on and one of them they have to build a water park for the kingdom but it's it's just a it's a strange (laughs) oddity but i would recommend watching it just because it's so weird and enjoyable and link is such a a, such an unlikable character (laughs) um but yeah i'd say go back and watch it it's 13 episodes just watch a couple you'll you'll get a flavor for what it is it's it's strange Thanks for that, Ryan. Uh, More to come in future Zelda episodes. Now we must absolutely rattle through these three-word reviews from Twitter. Follow us at Kane and Rince. Alex Dola says, skip this one. Glenn Watts, pass over it. (laughs) Craigity Craig, unfriendly, interesting experiment. Leia Haydu, ambitious, but failure. Magic Airplane says, frustrating new design. Matt Lucas, teeth-grinding frustration. Joe Dillon, experience, weakened experience. Dad Spickable says, who would have thought? Clifford Addison, jump and stab. Andrew Brown, hammer clears forest. Some other castle says, hard but satisfying. Matthew Cooper says, my gaming Moriarty. (laughs) Matthew Woolley, hard as hell. Red Five standing by says, too damn hard. David Kemicho says NES Dark Souls. Luca Lego Marcino, neglected but bold. Paul Shotton, loved as kid. Scruffy the Janitor says different but fun. Richard Burt and my pet Roxy, I am error. <laughs> Indeedy. Right, a very brief summary to spare uh, poor editor Sean, although he deserves it for dropping out of the show. But uh, <laughs> Darren, uh, would you recommend this game? <laughs> Capture your feelings. You kind of heard it about three quarters away through this podcast. Uh, I absolutely detest this game, and that really hurts as someone who really enjoys the series. But it has some good moments, um, which are very few and far between. But the the things I pick up from the game as we talk about it and as I play through it makes me appreciate it in some weird way. Um, I I don't recommend playing it. Um, or I recommend playing maybe the first half an hour of it just to get an idea of how uh, how bad it is. 
uh, it's really hard it's really like you know damning for me to say that because I really enjoy the series but that's how I felt about the game um, there, there are very few games that make me appreciate the one before by playing the sequel um, like I appreciate the original Legends of Zelda much more now after playing the second one um, and while I played them by, side by side you know within a couple of weeks of each other I kind of wanted to keep the two discussions separate I didn't want to allude to how much I don't like the second game in the series but retroactively it made the original um, uh, you know a, a better experience uh, in hindsight but <clears throat> You know, the, the 2D platforming, it's interesting. I'm glad they tried these things back then rather than, you know, try things now. Um, although while the series is kind of crying out for new experiments, I think they've kind of got it out of their system back then and uh, we can look forward to new experiments in the, uh, you know, in the Wii U version of The Legend of Zelda. Thanks, Darren. Uh, yes, I really, really struggled with this game at first, and I don't know if it was just uh, Stockholm Syndrome, but after a while, I actually found that I wasn't hating it um, for a sort of big chunk of the game. Um, and then by the end, i got to admit that I was hugely relieved it was over. Um, you've heard everything, really, there is to be said about the, the sort of gameplay and why I might feel that way. Um would I recommend that people play it? Probably not, no. A, a lot of people suggested that we skip this one as it was. Um, I'm glad I didn't. This this goes on to that long list of games that I'm glad I've experienced for myself, even if I did, you know, kind of compromise by using uh, save states and a walkthrough. I don't think I ever would have finished it otherwise. But I think there are people out there who would get a kick out of doing it properly, um, but not the majority of people in this day and age, I don't think. Ryan? Though my opinions are pretty negative about this game, I always do try to uh, look for the positive and try to, you know, at least learn something from the game or, or pull out something that, that came out positive from this experience. And I will say that uh, as much as I tried to do that, the only thing that I really found myself liking was the music in the temples, both the uh, the temple mm. theme and the, the final grand temple theme was... Uh, uh, just stunning pieces of music and so you know if nothing else we got a couple good compositions um but yeah overall i wouldn't really recommend people go back to this i I think it has some sort of historical significance in that it was a little bit of a a pre-runner to kind of the modern dark souls design in a way but i think even for that there are better games to go back to like the old uh, ninja guidance and the old uh you know uh, Castlevanias especially um, can teach you so much more about you know modern Dark Souls design than this game can, um, and they're better experiences overall. I, I I find it interesting that there are games just within the last few years that are um, kind of resurrecting the Zelda Two formula, like that Adventure Time game that I mentioned before that uh, was kind of note for note just like this game from the overworld map design to the side-scrolling battles. Uh, um, it's interesting that people are starting to go back to that now and, and try to make Zelda 2 likes now that maybe the, the memory is far enough away that it's just kind of this oddity and this this thing that we have a, and a more peripheral knowledge than an experiential knowledge of. Um, overall, yeah, I, I can't really recommend that people go back and play it, even for those who want to be completionists with the series. It's, uh, it's it's real, really just kind of a drudgery to get through. And um, overall, I think that this game is error. 
<laughs> All right. Uh, so it just remains for me, Leon, to thank Darren and Ryan. Thanks to Sean for editing, but not for dropping out the show. Just no thanks to Josh whatsoever. <laughs> Don't mean <laughs> oh. it, guys. We completely understand. Uh, and remind you that next time in Volume 5, Issue 205, you'll hear no objections from us. It's the courtroom drama and turnabout trials of Gakuten Saiban in our Phoenix Wright Ace Attorney issue. <laughs> <laughs>